Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Mara Evans, and I'm a student farm manager at the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is Peter Couchman. Peter has spent his working life in the cooperative movement. He's currently the CEO of the Plunkett Foundation, which supports rural communities by helping them to create cooperatives. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. So let's start off simple. What exactly is a cooperative? A cooperative takes many forms, but in its essence, it's the idea that the people that care most about saving or creating a service can own it. So therefore, the idea that it, whether it's owned by the workers or the customers, um, simply that, that you will actually all together own it. One member, one vote. No you know, money doesn't outvote you within there. And you'll live by a set of values that actually says... In essence, that we actually believe we're better off doing this together than any one of us thinking we can do better for that. Um, so it's a really simple idea that you'll then find thousands of different ways of doing across the world. But to me, it's about actually believing in people to say, yeah, I could go off and set this business up myself. But if I actually set it up with a group, that will always be stronger because none of us is as clever as all of us. Indeed. And Britain in particular has a very storied history of the cooperative movement, much more so, I think, than the United States. Could you, could you outline that briefly? Yeah, I mean, I would also slightly caution as well that it's a bit like um, soccer and cricket, that we think because we invented it, we do it best, which really isn't the case. Uh, but in essence, I mean, the, the, the roots of the modern movement um, came from the Industrial Revolution and people trying to think, was this the way we wanted our lives to be? Uh, and a, a fairly dedicated small group saying, well, maybe actually if we could could actually run an enterprise and make some profit then we could actually start to control our own community um, that ended up in 1844 in Rochdale with the first modern cooperative although there have been many before then who actually set up a shop but also set up those principles of actually how do you run it this idea that yeah you couldn't be outvoted that it was connected to the community and so on um, for it. And from that, it expanded rapidly to become a movement that well, didn't just have shops, but had factories and farms and all sorts of other elements there. Uh, but in some ways, that became so dominant that, in actual fact, other countries are often stronger in other cooperative models than we are within that. So, yeah, if you take the rural electric co-ops over here, much larger on a scale than you would find within England. Um, so, to me, I always, in each country, I look for where are the strengths rather than just assuming that the British way is the, the only way. Right. So how how is the Plunkett Foundation situated within this larger history of the cooperative movement? In essence, um, Horace Plunkett was, was an Irish pioneer who looked at the British model and thought in Ireland he wanted to root it in rural communities and particularly the role of small farmers. Um, so rather than setting up shops, they set up creameries because every home had a cow in it and they would milk the cow and sell the surplus for very poor amounts of money uh, and normally actually also fairly low quality as well. Um, yet across Europe, you were seeing the mechanisation of this and highly sophisticated equipment coming through. The idea was if the village actually owned that, they controlled their market and they could raise the quality and get a better return. And so that was his route, this idea of actually rural communities taking control. And he then created us to spread those ideas beyond Ireland. Right. So one of the things the Plunkett Foundation works with is to establish community-owned pubs. What mm. does a community-owned pub look like? And what do we stand to lose if we allow our neighborhoods or our communities to lose pubs or smaller community stores? Mm-hmm. If I was with, with, with a smile on my face, I would say it looks very much like any other pub, apart from there are more people in it normally. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically in the UK, the pub is a very British tradition, and I think in all these things, you have to look at what works in your own community. Would it work with an American bar? Not, not, not as sure, but I'm sure it could be made so. Um, 
basically we are losing um, 40 a week. Um, so significant closures of pubs going on. And it's important to see these aren't just places where you go to drink. These are our community hubs. Obviously, in rural areas, it could be the only place you can gather within a village um, for it. But even in urban settings, it can become a, a vital part of that as well. So if a community says, well, we want to save this, what they then say is, well, what do I want it to look like? So they actually sit down and say, well, in this community, we actually want a pub that's got your um, beer at a reasonable price or we want a particular food offering, etc." So they actually start to shape what they want in their own community. And so you get this highly vibrant pub being born out of a failed pub um, and we've never lost one yet because the community cares about it and they support it. So one, one of the things I'm pulling out of that is the importance of discourse within the communities in establishing cooperatives. How does the Plunkett Foundation work with communities that may benefit from a co-op as opposed to imposing a cooperative yep. model on them? I mean, the, the way I would put it is, is what we call Horace on a horse. If we go back to Horace Plunkett in Ireland, he would have ridden into a community on his horse, sat down with the villagers, listened to all the problems they faced, and then convinced them that some of those problems they could tackle by forming a cooperative. But the key bit there is it's the uh, things that they identify, not you. Uh, and it's the same today. So our role is if someone says, well, we're thinking of doing this, we wouldn't say, great, start a pub or start a shop. We'd say, well, do you want to come and visit other communities that have done this? And do you want to look at the implications of doing this and how hard it might be? And do you want to think about the different models of doing this and which one works for you? So you work with people to build up that idea. It's got to come from them. Um, because if, if you, they don't, the first time you hit problems, it will be gone. And what you see here are highly resilient forms of enterprise, therefore. Uh, I mean, I don't know about the American figures, but in the UK, um, after five years, about 43% of businesses will, have, will still be going from when they started. Um, for shops, that's 99%. And for pubs, it's 100%. Um, so the community being engaged is also an incredibly sharp business model because people want to support what they help to create. And how have you found the cooperatives to weather the, the Great Recession or the otherwise turbulent economy of the mm. past 10 or so years? Do you feel as if cooperatives may be more vulnerable to larger macroeconomic forces than something that's more traditional in structure? It's interesting. The very large co-ops undoubtedly got hit in the recession. Um, with ours, it, we were literally going up the down escalator within it, that ours were actually rising and doing better in recession than the mainstream and for a number of years now they've actually outperformed the major retailers uh, within that and again that's because you know when things get tight if you've actually got an enterprise that you can actually help to shape and to reflect that and have those conversations of you know we're, we're actually we're suffering here how can we actually take the load off everybody you've actually got a model that can adapt far faster than a centrally controlled one um, so no we actually short saw openings rise and we saw sales rise and profitability rise during recession when everybody else was um, was going down within that. It's incredible. What a, what a testament to the strength of community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Localism Act of 2011 uh, appears to have been pretty influential, I think, on the contemporary cooperative mm -hmm. movement. Could you tell me a bit more about the effects on that work and on the mission of the Plunkett Foundation? Mm, it's a really interesting um, piece of legislation. And for start, it's important to realise that the commitment to create it was by a Conservative government. Um, and so a Conservative government went into the election with a commitment to actually change property-owning rights. Um, obviously only in a small way, but it was quite a radical move, and one that they were personally very proud of. Yeah, and uh, so the 
localism has a number of different elements to it, but the one that changes things for us is what is called an asset of community value. Because what we were seeing is that people that valued a pub or a shop or a playing field or virtually anything in their community that the community valued could suddenly wake up one morning and find it gone. Um, with no chance to actually say, well, we could actually have taken that over and run it. So what the, the, the Act does is, in essence, it says the community can identify what it calls an asset of community value. It can go to the local council and ask for this to be registered. Um, and once that's happened, there's obviously a process of, of consultation that goes on to do that. The owner then can't sell the asset straight away. They have to announce they intend to sell it. And for six months, they could only sell it to the community. Um, after that time, they're free to do whatever they like, whatever price they like. They're under no compulsion to sell to the community. So, and certainly on the pub side, we'll often get some quite sharp operators um, challenging on that one. But it does give the community the chance to think ahead, and it does give the community time and space to actually try to come up with an idea themselves. And um, so, once we'd like to see the act strengthened, I mean, it really was a breakthrough, saying we actually uh, the playing field for this is uneven. And we need to actually make sure the community's got a better chance, what we call a community right to try, to actually get to come together and to do this. Um, so it's, a, it's been a useful piece of legislation for us, um, but it's always bits you want to tweak. I think this leads into an interesting discussion, um, or at least a parallel with the United States food system. One thing I, I worry about when looking at the United States food movement is its, its tendency to veer into the territory of like fad fixes, right? Like mm. this will be the one magic bullet that will yep. completely revolutionize the food world. Um, but in actuality, it's neglecting the much deeper rooted systemic mm. issues that are creating inequities in the yep. food system. So my, my question for you then is, where do you think systemic change comes from is it from a more like policy oriented angle mm. like something like the localism act or is it something more determined by consumers or by the community um where where do you stand on that yes yeah, it's, it's a um, it's one you can endlessly debate and i find it fascinating I, I don't believe in the magic bullets i think yeah we've seen that time and time again these things take time and they gain momentum um what we've been arguing and was actually arguing in a big cop conference in quebec last week is that if you want to influence the wider system the traditional co-op route has been to say, well, you must actually give us support because we're, we're very big. Um, we'd argue that actually impresses nobody because there's a lot of other people out there that are very big, you know, large multinational corporations, etc. within it. What we find is it's because of that route to community and solving real problems. That's what gives you political influence. Um, so to give an example of how far can you push these ideas up, uh, when the British Prime Minister David Cameron became leader of the G8, um, obviously his first speech, this is credibility time, you know, I'm leader of the, uh, of the, of the, of the world on this one, uh, and he's, in his first speech he actually talked about the village shops and the pubs and you only used our numbers within the speech. Um, so what we find is that power of connecting with ordinary people's lives, that's the bit that drives it. I mean, the last um, British election... In 2010, it was the first time ever that all three main political parties' platforms mentioned cooperatives. But they only mentioned in every single one three types of cooperatives, which is saving the village shop, saving the pub, and saving your soccer club. Now, all of those are about what ordinary people care about, and there's a model that they can actually take control of. So I believe in getting it right at the grassroots and using that power upwards, rather than believing you can come top down and and trying to get that change there. It takes time, but it's, it's real when it gets there. Certainly. Um, so in response to hearing Sir Horace Plunkett's ideas about cooperatives, then U.S. President 
Theodore Roosevelt, good old good old Teddy, mm. declared, "That's it. I'll declare it to the world." Mm. Uh, more or less, kind of saying mm. he's going to provide a United States megaphone for this mm. just very wonderful idea of cooperatives. How does the Plunkett Foundation today establish connections and channels of communication with? people across the world um, to combat what you identified as more like transnational, large, bulky apparatuses of mm. the industrial food system? I mean, one, it's a daunting task, too. And I, wouldn't, I think our role has always been to get conversations going. You know, to me, it's insulting to go into another country and tell them what they should be doing, whether that's a developed nation or a developing one within there. So what we've always been is the place you can come to explore. Uh, and so we see that as if you're actually uh, trying to tackle issues, being able to come along to us and the networks that, that we engender and say, well, we're looking at this. Is anyone else looking at that? And, and ne they nearly always are. Um, so that's our style. Just get conversation flowing. Um, and I think it's one that we've kind of been improving in recent times. We, we were very good in, in the past with that one. I think we kind of let it drop a little bit. You know, now we've now we're leading a development within Europe to actually get all the COP developers talking there. And we're working with other some of the UN agencies to try to get a network beyond there. So that's what I think in the world that we are in now, the ability to have conversations with people you could never have reached before is, is great. And that also means that actually the ideas you've got, you can actually sense check them against others around the world. So that's what we'd like to see, those activists talking to each other and gaining strength there. Great. So... Another quote from, from the historical archives that I really enjoy. Sir, Sir Horace Plunkett said, um, better farming, better business, better living, right? Those were the three pillars of kind of his vision for a, a new society. What do those look like today? What perspective does the Plunkett Foundation bring yep. to those three foundational ideas? Yeah. I mean, for some they still matter a huge amount. And literally, if you join Plunkett, you get what we call horacing. You actually get a session looking at these. It's important, obviously, he was talking to farmers when he was saying that. So what you can unpack them and using his descriptions for, by better farming, he meant the technical. If you're trying to get this going, whether you're a farmer or you're community you shouldn't have to reinvent wheels you should actually have at your disposal the best thinking around this the best access to knowledge and training etc and that's potentially a role for government certainly a role for other organizations to provide so communities need support by better business he was absolutely clear he meant cooperatives that everyone having a stake was what unlocked something special but the really key one was better living this idea that these organisations only um, survive and only thrive because they're rooted in their own communities. And if you ever lose that, if you ever lose that aim of I'm not just doing this to run a business, I'm doing this to make a this a better place around here. I'm thinking about my kids and their grandchildren um, as well as you know my, my short-term interests there. So he, in, in later life, he realised that you couldn't assume better living would happen. You had to actually get that working. And that's exactly how we see ourselves working today uh, within that. So, for instance, we're doing a, a fascinating project in Western Canada, uh, looking across the four Western provinces about what should co-op development look like there. And the core of it is those three betters. To say that if you're living in a remote rural community, those are the things you've got to get right if you want a sustainable future. So... Earlier today, I, I heard that you were you were digging through the dusty tomes mm. in Yale's magnificent libraries, mm. um, specifically looking at some of the historical documents that Sir Horace Plunkett himself generated. Mm. Um, could you share a little bit of maybe some like juicy tidbits you may have found while Ooh. looking through? Not sure that they're the juiciest, but certainly some interesting oh. ones. There. <laughs> I mean, basically, what it was is uh, yeah, Horace was always well connected with the American political system, um, and therefore, um, what you've got here are the papers of E.M. House, Colonel House. 
who was Horace knew well in the First World War in discussions of should America enter the war or not, but had known before then. So he was kind of the go-between often between the president and, and him. And so in all the papers, you've got a whole series of, of letters and also just other documents going in there. Um, so there's some really interesting bits. One that surprised me, there was um, one that was actually described as a cabinet paper briefing about US um, Anglo relations and I assumed it meant US cabinet papers but it wasn't it was a British cabinet paper sitting in the, in the archives here which was uh, I'm not sure the British cabinet know that um, and what we also saw was just him sharing what was going on about a coal mine he was struggling with um, trying to get money from Andrew Carnegie to, to set us up uh, and probably the strangest one of them all um, Horace had many great ideas but he also had some odd ones and one of his ideas about health was the benefits of sleeping with access to fresh air so he actually designed a bedroom that sat on top of his house and was simply like a wooden hut on top and then literally only had three walls and you could rotate it so you turned the open wall away from where the wind was blowing and then you slept up there in the cold air and there's actually a picture of that in the archives here um, which he always claimed was very beneficial but we did we have actually got a, a letter from one of his, his colleagues he says he's been sleeping on the roof again and made himself sick won't he ever learn <laughs> so not always the best so I think you really got Horace the man in the collection here and, and that, that tremendous diversity of interest that he had right and one one question I have right so I am a student here what role do you see universities or the academy in creating conversations about establishing cooperatives in their own communities um, or how can you use kind of these historical archives to, to bolster or supplement current cooperative movements? I mean, to us, we're, we're always passionate about our history, but it's a history to look forwards. So it's actually what what did we learn that were fundamental to developing things that you're now going to use now and look forwards. What I would say within universities is making sure you're actually connecting with the real world out there in terms of outside, the concept of what is an enterprise is changing dramatically. The old idea that there are simply big corporations, that's the only model, really is being fundamentally challenged. If you look at, you know, for instance, the technology industry, Industry. You see a lot more about much smaller enterprises being used for creativity within there. So out there, there's this wonderful diversity. I think it's really important that students expose themselves to a whole range of other models. So when they get out there, they're thinking, what one works for me? Do I just want to go straight into a for-profit organisation? Or do I actually want to find something that actually shapes more with my personal values, etc.? So I would say uh, learn and discover about cooperatives, but actually uh, put it in that wider setting as well. Don't think they're the answer to everything. They're not the answer to many things um, but just understand that diversity and work out what works for you and that's why I'm in the, the movement because it actually fits with my values uh, yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable being somewhere else so but but also the other thing is there's so many out there find the ones that work for you find out what your interests are and how that's reflected uh, within it so uh, I think the feeling has been that probably m much of academia has neglected co-ops as a model uh, until recently but I think we're entering a new period where people have realized it's not just about cooperatives it's about cooperation um, because if you actually look at that in the marketplace that's far more important now more recognized than we've ever seen before yes we're competitive but we also cooperate as well and I think we kind of suppress that uh, my good friend Ed Mayo at Cooperatives UK, uh, you know, one of his favourite phrases, he says, you know, keep being told it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, but when did you last see a dog eat another dog? Hmm. So you touched on something briefly there about kind of the cooperative movement and the work in the cooperative movement mm -hmm. as aligning with your personal values. Mm -hmm. At what point did you decide, if you could even pin it down to a singular moment, at what point mm -hmm. did you decide that you wanted to work in the cooperative movement and to mm -hmm. work with 
rural development and rural communities. Yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a long path. I mean, I, I've spent all my working life within that. Uh, basically, my father had worked for a co-op, um, but um, in, in Brighton, in, in, in Sussex, on the south coast. Um, but I, I'd just seen it as another retailer. And I was actually doing research when I was going through university that actually touched on some of the very early co-ops. And I suddenly realised the job I was going to do at weekends just to get you know a few dollars to... Um, you know, go out on a Friday evening was actually connected to that world, and that's when and, you know, and one person in particular sort of encouraged me down that route, and and then it, it's kind of gone in stages. You then realise there's so much more to it, and it starts widening out. And then finally, I mean, how I ended up with Plunkett was I realised although I'd actually spent my life in, in very large co-ops and had some you know, tremendous experiences there, I realised that what I was doing is I was actually changing people's lives by a small amount to a very large number of people. Whereas working in this world, I was actually working with a much smaller number of people, but really dramatic changes to their lives. And that was what I wanted to do and to be. So hence being at Plunkett. You get the amplification effect, Mm. as it were. So what is one idea, aside from cooperatives, of course, or maybe even within cooperatives in the world of food and agriculture that really interests you right now, Mm. that is on the horizon of change or revolution or progress? Mm. Uh, to me, I mean, the one I've always had a great passion around local food. Um, and I, I do believe that we want alternatives to a mainstream, large scale distribution um, of food. And I would stress the alternatives. I don't think it's going to replace um, overnight within there. And I think what we're seeing in, in the UK, and I, I get a sense it's probably over here as well, is we've kind of gone through several stages with that. What we started off seeing was a whole range of amazing individual producers of amazing local food. You know, people creating new cheeses or breads or whatever, and fantastic foods there. What we then started to see and what Plunkett's been involved with is actually what happens when communities step in and start wanting to engage with that and to build. And I kind of want to see what the systems that come out of that are now. So how do we actually get a local food economy developing that actually is supporting growers, supporting community and building new ideas there? Uh, And that's the bit for me. We're just at the very foothills of really understanding how that works. But when we get it, suddenly you'll have real options for buying local uh, and supporting local development. No doubt. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.